Okay, hello and welcome to episode 42 of Dano Says So, brought to you by Trust Records as part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Today's guest is a well-traveled musician for going on decades now. He's done road work with Slapshot, with the Vandals, with Ignite. I know him as an on-again, off-again bandmate and someone I've recorded LPs with, with Speak 714, with Shiners Club. That right there is grounds for a good, solid conversation. But the main reason I wanted to talk to Doug today is because Doug is a fighter in a way that I am not. And I don't mean that he is some knuckle-dragging, trouble-causing, you know, suburban violence fantasy. I mean that he has spent years and years and years inside the ropes in a sport that I adore. For that reason, last week it occurred to me that is the next talk to be having. Uh, Doug McKinnon, thank you for doing this. Hey, appreciate you having me on. Thank you very much. Real quick, just because, you know, I know some of the places you've lived and I know how I perceive you, but were you born and raised in Boston or? I was. I was born in the Merrimack Valley. If anybody knows that, it's uh, kind of uh, mostly it's three three old mill towns, uh, Haverhill, where I was born, Lawrence, Massachusetts, and Lowell. Uh, And there there were mill towns. My grandparents uh, came from Quebec and from Italy to work in those shoe factories in Haverhill, raised my mom there. And that is where I was born. And my dad came from Boston, a neighborhood called Alston. Okay. which has been nicknamed Alston Rock City. It was ironically in the 90s, it became kind of the rock mecca where all the musicians were living. But when my dad grew up, it was mostly a uh, immigrant community of Irish where his parents came from Ireland and a lot of black African-Americans that came up from the South at that time. So it was mostly an Irish and African-Americans uh, relocated to Boston in that neighborhood. So yeah, then then I was mostly raised in the North, what they call the North Shore. Okay. Before I went to high school. And uh, it was uh, there I got into the hardcore scenes for various reasons. But there was always a lot of, uh, for suburban Boston, it was kind of an area where a lot of the bands came from. Once you got north of the city of Boston, those suburbs up there, and Marblehead, Lynn, you know, that's where your DYSs, SSD, uh, Moving Targets, a lot of that. I went to high school with um, Pat Brady from Moving Targets, and he was the one who kind of got me into the music. But yeah, that's where I was born and raised. Okay. So there's a stereotype or a West coast fantasy when thinking about the East coast, hearing that you're from Mickey Ward's neighborhood and an Irish boxer from Boston paints all kind of pictures for me. How old were you when you first stepped in the ring? That's the ironic part is I never boxed when I was younger. I didn't put on really. So I got hired to California. Yeah. The, the story behind that is I always wanted to box. always wanted to do martial arts, but my parents were really against it. My dad, you know, he still had the stereotype because obviously he grew up in, you know, um, immigrant working class community. And in his era, you know, boxing gyms were basically, you know, people ran numbers out of them. They were, you know, <laughs> completely mafia controlled. Most of the fighters ended up penniless, alcoholics, um, brain damaged. So he's like, what do you want to do that for, son? Play hockey, play baseball. You know what I mean? Like, he just was really, really against it. And that what you know, and at that point, boxing was really kind of wasn't very popular, at least where we were at. What years are we um, talking about? You know, like the early 80s. Okay. So then um, yeah, so he never really uh he taught me, you know, because he he boxed when he was younger, of course it was all right for him, right? Mm-hmm. And then <laughs> so he 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 gave me some some fundamentals and some basics and uh more or less taught me how to street fight. Mm-hmm. That was, uh, that was, he taught me how to box correctly. You know, when I first started boxing, my, you know, the coaches were actually like, Oh, you have some decent fundamentals. I'm like, yeah, my dad showed me some fundamentals. 
his lessons were more based in uh, street fighting and how to avoid it. And then <laughs> if not able to avoid it, how to make sure you want it. Right. Well, then let's talk about you boxing in California. Mm-hmm. Once you're out from under the need for parental permission, there's a first step when you actually try and give it a try. And I took a much briefer runner at run at it than you do did. I was very easy to hit and I wasn't particularly gifted and I didn't stick with it yet. It remains this fantasy in my life that I have some background in it. That's not true for you. From what I understand, you did pretty well and you stuck with it. So, I mean, was it like catching a bug? Was it like being motivated by your own talent? I mean, what made it, what made it stick? Yeah, basically the background of how I really decided, uh, because obviously I came out to California to serve consistently and to play in a punk rock band. Now, the boxing was just never really, it wasn't really a, a thought. I'm like, oh, okay, now that I'm on my own, I'm going to, you know, go do, you know, join a boxing gym like I always wanted to. What spurred that, which was the astronomical amount of violence that was going on in punk rock when I moved to Southern California, Absolutely. which completely freaked me out because Boston, we're definitely known for being a very scrappy town. It's just in the blood. It's a very, Irish Catholic working class town and fighting is just kind of in the bones of Boston. But in the punk scene, because it was smaller, we all kind of knew each other. So unless you had a personal issue with somebody or there was just somebody who staggered in drunk to the show, you know, the age old one, and just didn't know how to really behave themselves on the dance floor and was trying to be abusive, then, you know, they get touched up. But for the most part, it was not, not when I moved to Southern California, my first show was Fear. Angry Samoans, DI, JFA, and Heavy Dirt at the Olympic Auditorium. And that was still, I don't know how many, it was 1986. And it's still, I couldn't believe what I was, what I was witnessing. I, I'd never seen that level of violence anywhere in my life. I mean, it was just, it was vicious. I mean, because at least at that show, it was so many innocent people that were just, it was their turn. No, the, you know, there'll be 20 guys against one guy just with his hands up begging for his life. And then they would just beat him into oblivion, you know, get drugged out by the feet, thrown in an ambulance and off to the next one. And, you know, you see something like that. And I was like, yo, that could have, the only difference between that guy and me is, you know, 10 feet of of floor space. It was that random. It was that severe. When Mm -hmm. I started to speak up, I was going to say the only really truly severe debilitating beating I ever took in my life was at the Olympic at a show, just like you're describing. Yeah. So, you know, and then of course, then I moved to Long Beach and started going to Fenders and it was more of the same there, mm-hmm. um, which seemed almost worse because it was a smaller venue. So it seemed a little tougher to like kind of stay out of the, out of the, out of the line of fire. Mm-hmm. So then uh, I got, you know, of course it was my turn eventually. And I got jumped a few times and I said, you know what, why don't I go to the boxing gym? Like I always wanted to. So that way, at least I can get my, my skills up to the point where I, at least I can fight my way to safety and not end up unconscious, you know, mm-hmm. getting a boot party. So I went and found a boxing gym here in Long Beach, which was Jeremy Williams, who's a famous heavyweight boxer. He's actually in the Amateur Boxing Hall of Fame. I believe he was a top 10 prospect at one point. He, uh, His dad had a gym on Long Beach Boulevard and 10th, and I went in there. And this is like the old school gym where you just basically went in, paid your fee, and just figured it out. And you just, I just started hitting the bag how I thought I was supposed to be hitting it. And eventually... If you looked like you had some level of potential, a coach would kind of make his way over to you and start giving you some pointers. And uh, they would work with you as much as you showed them that you were, you know, willing to put the to put the work in back, you know. 
So the next thing I know, I had a trainer and um, I started sparring. And uh, I mean, I was just really, really natural at it. And like you said, uh, I was so shocked at how natural it came to me because I was never a fighter growing up. I had no idea that if I could fight it or not. I just, I just hated the whole pre-fight situation. I hated arguing with people. I wasn't a bully. I didn't like, I just didn't like all the negative energy that led up to a fight. So anytime that would come my way, I would do anything in my power to just avoid it. You know, I wasn't in a lot of skirmishes as a kid. And then, uh, you know, once I got in the ring, I was like, wow, you know, this is really, you know, I really, that doesn't mean that I, I was knocking people out. Every time I step in the ring to spar, I was taking my fair share of beatings because I was getting in there with much more experienced people. I was seeing improvement every time I go. And I just, I got addicted to it and just kept going, 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 going. And to the point where I started boxing in the amateurs and I was, you know, in the vandals at the time I was playing music and I ended up quitting the vandals. And one of the reasons that I quit the vandals is because I wanted to focus more on boxing full time. Okay. How long did you, how long did you do it where you would be actively scheduling fights and fighting in the amateurs? You know, probably only about a three year stint. Yeah, but you weren't a boy. You were. I'm. I'm. I'm thinking that puts. No, you no, in no. Your, I was. Uh, yeah, well I was 1920. Yeah, okay. 19, 20, 21. So it was still, you know, young enough to be in the amateurs. Um, older than the young, young ones, but uh, you know, it was still. Yeah, yeah. I, I won nationals in 1991, out in Azusa. Yeah, and then I then I started kickboxing and doing Muay Thai after that. Williams Gym closed, mm -hmm. and I was looking for a second gym, and I saw a ring in a bay window on anaheim and pacific i was like oh cool another boxing gym great just what i needed so i went in there and it was all cambodian refugees that had just gotten there like recently so they really had very limited english they could barely speak english i walked in and it was like it was like a movie like whether just the, the needle comes off the record like what <laughs> what's this guy want like what's he selling is he he doesn't have a tie on so we know he's not a mormon coming to because <laughs> back in the day, and there's still, you know, the more, a lot of Mormons do work up that in that neighborhood for some random reason. And I always respected that. I'm like, man, these kids are going right into the belly of the beast. <laughs> okay. So especially back then. So at that gym, I'm sure it was a completely different experience, but you get into a different kind of fighting there. Yeah. Um, I'd never seen Muay Thai, which technically it wasn't Muay Thai because Muay Thai is Thai boxing. They were from Cambodia. So the, mm -hmm. the, the actual name for them is Kun Kamai which is, you know, Cambodian boxing, but they're, they're almost identical. You know what I mean? They're, they're next door neighbors. It'd be like trying to say the difference between Canadian boxing and, and U S boxing. And I'd never seen that before. I'd seen like the full contact karate and like the kickboxing that you would see like Chuck Norris and Bill Superfoot Wallace doing, which was with a, you know, it was more of like boxing with like Taekwondo. I'd never seen the leg kicks, the knees, the elbows. So when I walked in that gym, I was just like, what is this? And I'm like, and I don't know what it is, but I want some of this. And they were kind of trying to like, they sort of try to hustle me out the door because they just like, they're like, what does this kid want? Like, we don't have to try to speak English to this kid and figure this out. So I basically just said, hey, what's the what's the monthly rate? They gave me a price. I paid it. And I just minded my own business. I go in there and I just start imitating what I saw them doing. And, like, and I kept going back and, you know, just kind of like everything else in life. You know, if you're persistent enough, you know what I mean? People start taking a little more serious. So after a while, and they actually saw the boxing skills. So they're like, oh, well, he's got good hands. So now he's kind of getting the, the hang of the, the, the knees and the elbows and, the, and the, the tie kicks. So they started taking me a little more serious there. I started sparring. Uh, the trainers started kind of working with me a little more. And then I started fighting the Muay Thai. Okay. Throughout this, you know, first few minutes of this conversation, your default position, your natural instinct is to frame things within where your life was in punk rock at the time. And very I mean, much it, so, yeah. it, it makes sense. I mean, I know you, but punk rock played a very real role 
and you being able to get the Long Beach United Boxing Club off the ground, right? Oh yeah, you could draw a straight line back right down to um, you know, to my partner, you know, Eric. Uh, Eric Sandin, he plays drums in No Effects. I had met him back in the day when I was in the band. I was in No Effects, did some shows together. And then he moved to Long Beach in like the mid nineties and we were buddies and he, uh, yeah, one day surfing, he's like, so when are you going to open your own gym? I'm like, well, if I had the capital, I'd do it tomorrow. And he's like, well, I got the capital. You have the know-how. He's like, well, let's do this. And kind of like a lot of things in my life, really punk rock somewhere, even in the most place where you would least expect it to have had an influence on, you know, what was going on in my life. It was, it was somewhere there. Okay. The gym. What year did it open? I know I was living in Long Beach, so that puts it somewhere between yeah. 2012 and maybe 2015, 16. Yeah. Yeah. We we started building in 2012. Okay. And uh, January 1st, 2013 was our first day. Okay. I can remember times where it was the hub of 4th Street and where it seemed to be the center of all life for a certain demographic. Were you surprised at the success? Yes and no. It's like when you're in the moment, you really don't have time to like step back and see what, what you've created and what's going on is because you're just kind of so locked into the moment. Like I have to do this. You're thinking of what you have to do tomorrow that I take care of these things I was supposed to do yesterday. So I never really, as it was just, it was just kept building and building and building. I was always very appreciative though. I mean, I, I was always just like, I can't believe this is my life that you know I, I dreamt about this and creating this. And this is actually exceeding, the, the dream that I had, you know, it's even better than I had imagined it. And I wanted to make sure that I really took those moments to be like, Hey, appreciate what you have, you know, don't stress that you're tired or don't stress that I could have done, you know, I should have done this. I should have done that. You know, just, you know, appreciate what you, what you've created and what, where your life is right now, because nothing lasts forever. We all know that. And things can change in a blink of an eye for better or for worse. And so, you know, when you finish up and, you know, for me, I locked that gym door, turn off those lights, and, uh, you know, I'm just thankful. I'm like, look, another day doing what you love to do. Over the mm-hmm. last two years, it wasn't, I won't say easy, but it wasn't as fluid as it had been because of the pandemic. And you and I talked a lot during maybe the first nine, 10 months of that. Were you ever uh, frightened that the world just wouldn't swing back around and the gym would continue to be possible? Yeah, I think everybody emotionally whether they want a minute or not mentally had you know it was going through a rough time it was pretty tough not to be affected by what happened mm-hmm. and but i was also you know very I, you know i just had to you know be accepting i'm like look you know i mean first of all you really never knew that it was the uncertainty that was really wearing on me it right. went from two weeks to flatten the curve then it's going to be next month and then they gave us a little like i think in june or july that we opened up and they let us open up for like a like a about a little month window shut it back down. So it was a constant, like, what's going on? What's going on? What am I going to do? You know, um, I was going to Miami because Florida was wide open. So I was going to the gyms back there where I used to work. And, um, you know, and I was planning on, okay, well, if this doesn't work out, you know, if the gym doesn't make it through, you, you got to figure it out from there. And, you know, and you, you're not the only one going through this. And, and I just did what I had to do. You know, I just, uh, I got, I had some, some, some luck. I had uh, a friend who happened to be, working on a movie that got um, quarantined over in Ireland for like four or five months, you know, because they didn't want to send the whole cast and crew back to, um, you know, to, to LA. They just like, let's just, you know, sh- shelter here shelter in place. I hate that term, but shelter in place here. And uh, 
and so he basically called me up and he said, Hey, obviously the gym's closed. He's like, you want to take my private clients because I, I can't get back to LA for the foreseeable future. And so I was able to go do personal training at people's homes. And that really kind of got me through the crux of it. I mean, obviously it just basically paid for the expenses. It wasn't a, it's a banner year mm-hmm. <laughs> financially by any stretch, but we did survive through it. Well, you made it through. I like seeing the, the videos and I like looking online and seeing uh, bodies in the gym. As far as that online presence goes, the funnest stuff to see is you with the kids. And I get the impression that's hands down your favorite part. Would that be fair? Oh, yeah. That's, that's absolutely. Since, since day one. Yeah. Since day one, it's really been. Um, and and it's, it was always something that came very natural to me and, uh, because I uh, worked at other gyms for probably a decade before I opened this, okay. um, which made it a lot easier because I, I you know, I, I already saw a business model that worked and I could take that business model and adjust it to and brand it and run it in, in, in my style. But I was always in charge of the kids programs, any gym I worked at. And I just always loved it. And it just came natural to me. It's something I'll probably always do. Yeah, even if I don't own my own gym in the future, uh, I think even if I had a whole different career, would, I would always make time in my life to work with kids, you know, in, in, the, in the fitness industry and more specifically in the boxing, kickboxing industry. I love it. When you talk about it, the pride shows, when I see those videos, those are some very small kids. But what's the cutoff about what's the youngest that you deal with or about how young can it get where parents are still comfortable turning them loose in there? I start them at five, you know, basically once they kind of can, you know, follow basic directions, they, they know they're left from their right. Yeah. I mean, obviously the way you try, I have to split the kids. I, you know, I have the five to uh, 11 year olds and I have the 12 to 17 year olds separate because the way you teach a, a six, seven year old is different than we teach a 16 year old. And it, you just have to kind of be realistic about what the limitations are and stay within those limitations and just get them to just get some basic fundamentals and most, most importantly, make, make sure they're having fun because it has to be something that they love to go to every day, you know, and if they keep coming, eventually through osmosis, they're going to start moving more naturally. You know, they're watching the kids that have a little more experience. They'll start mimicking them, you know, day by day, the little adjustments you make with them, you know, they start to pick it up. Just obviously a much slower process, but they start to get it. I just love it. There's that haggard old saying that if you work at something you love, you never work a day in your life. I don't know that that's true, but still I would say congratulations are in order for finding your way to this. I mean, really? Yeah. The other big passion and the narrative narrative device that, Keeps creeping into your conversation. Punk rock music. Yep. Your role in it. I would imagine, but I could be guessing wrong again, that that story does start in Boston. It does. Most people from our generation, we most of us have very similar stories. We never felt uh, like we fit in. At least myself. I can speak for myself. Like I, I grew up in that suburban Boston 80s environment, and I was like, man, I, this is, I can't live like this the rest of my life. This seems so boring to me. You know, I'm like, I want an adventure. I want something to, you know, I need to be inspired. I want to see the world. I want to travel. I, you know, and when I found punk rock, first I was just attracted to the aggression of the music because as a young adolescent, I was just had so much pent up confusion, anger, you know, trying to fit in and find yourself. And then when I heard that music, I was like, you know, and just, I'm sure I heard it a million times. I heard those lyrics, you know, I, I'm trying to think of the song that probably stood out to me the most, probably Rise Above by Black Flag when I heard that one or the, or the old, D, you know, that whole DOA first record. I was just like, wow, you know, what I mean, like this is, this music speaks to me. These lyrics speak to me because I feel different, you know, and I feel 
I don't feel like I fit in here. And I feel like, you know, this, I, you know, I, I need to find like-minded individuals. Fell in love with the music, started going to shows, just gravitated to the, to the crowd. I just love that you could be whoever you wanted to be. Of course, it was scene politics. We all mm-hmm. saw them. We all went through them because we're, you know, we're kids back then. I mean, we started going to shows. I mean, if there was somebody over 21, they seemed like an old man. So it was just, you know, it's, we were, you know, we were Lord of the Flies. We were kind of creating our own society with the good, the bad, and the ugly. But the good far outweighed the bad and the ugly. So I just kept running with it. And it kind of opened my, you know, my whole world up because up to that point, you know, my whole social life was like, going to a high school party where maybe they let you in, maybe they didn't because they didn't think you were in the cool crowd and the music seemed stale. You know, I was sitting there listening to like Journey and Culture Club and I'm like, oh man, it's like, this is not for me. Well, when did you land behind the drum kit? That ended up being, I always had a drum, I wanted a drum kit randomly when I was really young. My mom and dad saw one at a yard sale, bought it, stuck it down in the basement and I would whap away on it, crack away on it. You know, getting didn't really know what I was doing. I put on the headphones, put like you know Led Zeppelin on, you know old Aerosmith records, and just play along. I'm sure oof, probably sounded brutal, but and then there was some couple of punkers in my high school, and they're like, "We heard you like punk rock," and I'm like, "Yes, I do." And they're like, "We heard your dad's real cool." I'm like, "Yes, he is." They're like, I heard we could practice at your house. I'm like, "That's <laughs> definitely a possibility." And so, boom, I was in a band, Amerasian Holiday. Talk about the most cliche. Name sounds like a Saturday Night Live skit. How much time passed between that and and you landing in some pretty high profile bands and really traveling the world with it? I mean, did Slapshot happen during this initial life in Boston, or did that happen after you came west? You know, no, no, the the relationships, yeah, because uh, I was friends with Mark and Steve Choke. I didn't really know um, super well because it was kind of a if you know the dynamics of the old school Boston scene, there was the Boston crew and they were like the older guys, mm-hmm. you know, they were probably like th- four or five years older than us. They were all, all the heavy hitter original, you know, this is Boston, not LA compilation, FU's SSD control, gangrene, DYS, um, you know, the list goes like Jerry's kids, all that. So uh, we didn't really, you know, hang out with them that much. You know I mean? It was a little bit, it was like a big brother thing. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? They're like, ah, you kids, yeah, cool. All right, you got your little bands there, but you know, what I mean, we're doing big boy stuff over here. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so I didn't really get to, you know, I wasn't hanging out with like Springer and older. You know, as you get older, you know, then that that, that age difference becomes less less because now you're both in your twenties, so you're kind of hanging out in the same places and mm-hmm. you get to know each other. But originally, when I'm still in high school and these guys are a little older and they're touring, headlining bands, we weren't really hanging out. But Mark and Steve or Steen, I mean, and Hank, they were, you know, super friendly guys. I used to see them at shows all the time. Got along with them great. Eventually got to know Choke as I, when I got older. But no, that, uh, that slap shot didn't happen until I was living in L.A. and went home uh, to visit family. And then uh, Mark randomly couldn't do a tour. And they were like, hey, you got a job back in L.A.? I'm like, yeah. And they're like, oh, like, a good one that you actually like? I'm like, no, not at all. <laughs> they're like, well, we, we're going to Europe like three or four months. Mark can't do it. Uh, you want to, you know, learn the set and see what happens. I'm like, yeah, I'll come down. What year was that? That was 95. It was a, a 16 valve hate album tour for Europe. I was there in 94. So it's those years. It's those years right after the wall came down. So yeah. It was, it was an experience. Yeah. That was the year it, it was still up and then I went back and it was gone. What about the Vandals? Because that's another one that, you know, yeah, when, that's I do, another, when I do a graphic yeah. for your episode, they've got to be yeah. on there. You know. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, And that was another one of those dumb luck things. It just like 
when you're a kid, if you're just focused on, sometimes just luck kind of finds you. You know, I moved out. I knew nobody. I drove out in a little Nissan truck. I would sleep in the bed of it. I'd park on back on little side streets in Huntington back, you know, when it was very not so populated and I'd surf in the morning. Basically, I was kind of like just a homeless surf mom. And then I uh, went and grabbed the, the recycler. Remember that thing? I do. Yeah. I, yeah. Recycler. And I put an ad in the recycler, you know, um, like a drummer looking for a band influenced by Bad Brains, Black Flag, Motorhead, blah, blah, blah. You know, want to record, want to tour. Put it, you know, my little ad. I get a call. It was a band called Hate Club. They were from Westminster. I'm sure you know Dan the Bull. He was a singer. Yeah, so they were like kind of my first friends, and I started playing with them. And uh, they were like, where do you live? And I'm like, ah, oh, my truck. And they're like, whoa, like that ain't cool. So they asked their mother because they had like a little room that they used to rent. And they're like, hey, we have a room for rent in our house. You should probably just live here. So I started living there and hanging out with them. They would take me to shows. And I was just at a random party with those guys and met Joe Escalani. And Joe, uh, we just struck up a conversation. He's like, so you just moved here from Boston to play drums and a punk band and surf? I'm like, yeah. He's like, uh, well, he goes, you're in luck because I'm the drummer in the Vandals and I want to play bass. And you kind of look like me, so they probably wouldn't even think anything really changed. So uh, do you know our music? I'm like, yeah, I got your sticker on the back of my truck right now. And uh, like, okay, come on down. Uh, we practice at Todd Barnes' house from TSOL. And I'm like, okay, cool, no pressure. So I'm like, what did I just, what did I just land myself in? Right. You know, and right. of course I'd watched suburbia in high school, probably about 30 times, you know? So I'm like, wow. All right. But literally I wasn't even nervous. I'm just like, of course I met the guys in the Vandals. They live in Long Beach. You know what I mean? Like, of course I'm going to run into them. That's just the way life works out. Right. And I went, you know, auditioned and, you know, back then I think probably could have, you know, gotten a more proficient drummer. I'd only been playing drums man, for maybe a couple of years in bands at least. But it worked out. You know, I mean, the band that I had before that was with a mutual friend of ours named uh, Al Quinn. Remember oh, yeah, Al I Quinn? I know Suburban Al well. Yep. Yeah. That was my first actual band where I played live. Um, that was called No System. When Shiner's and, uh, Club first first started happening, Al sent me some message. I can't believe you and I have both been in a band with the legendary Doug McKinnon. <laughs> you gave me an in about 10 seconds, 10, 20 seconds ago that I want to jump on. And you were talking okay. about your proficiency as a drummer when you were in the Vandals. Um, you and I did some music together and uh, were on the same LP in the late 90s, in 97. And anytime yeah. you go to a first practice somewhere, most musicians, the thing they're going to look at and they want to make sure is there is the drummer and a solid backbone. Because, I mean, you know this, a bad drummer makes a project unserviceable. Oh, yeah. In my opinion, you were a good drummer back then. And that was a relief. I came and I was like, yeah, this will work. Plus, you had a look, you know, you were, you were you were an athlete and you were enthusiastic. I come to play with you yeah. more than 20 years later, and you're a completely different animal as a drummer. You're more driven. Your, your influences are more widely varied, and you are hard on yourself. Uh, why do you think that is? I know exactly why that is. I, um, I really was, you know, I, like I said, I was... Getting gigs when I was younger, I didn't. I wasn't schooled as a drummer. I didn't practice nearly enough for what it takes to be a really solid drummer. I was just getting by on some natural ability and an understanding of the musical form. So I knew how to play to get the dance floor going and to give the right feel for that type of music because I really understood it to my core because it was my entire life, hardcore and punk. Then when I moved to Miami, I decided I'm going to start trying to learn Latin music. 
because you're in Miami. You know what I mean? It's the epicenter of Latin America in the United States. So I start playing, you know, congas and other Latin percussion with the with a bunch of Cuban guys. And man, when you talk about like boot camp, they were just like, you you can't, like, you're not even in the ballpark. You need to. And they just started whipping me into shape. They were like, no, 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 no. Like, that's not, no, no, do this, do that, do this, you know. And I was like so humiliated and just, they broke me down. And I'm like, well, you know what? I'm going to start woodshedding. I'm going to start putting the time in and I'm going to try to, you know, really develop myself as a much more accomplished drummer. And so I, you know, I put a lot of time in practicing. Yeah. I just, you know, just, just put the time in that I should have put in when I was younger and I just did it later in life. And like I said, and learning a lot of those Latin rhythms just opened up my mind to so many different possibilities when I started playing in punk and hardcore, hardcore bands again. I've played with a lot of drummers and, and some who are fairly reputable and fairly well-known in underground music. And you're the only one who actually, you know, refers to things as a clave, as this, as that, as, as different methods and, and has an actual spoken technical appreciation for what he's doing. It was kind of fun to be around. It's no secret that, you know, anyone that was in Shiner's Club, who was like, it was usually our, our, our favorite band. It might not be the band that, you know, did the most uh, as far as touring and, and, you know, and, 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 you know, being all over the place. But um, as far as creativity, that, that tops my list. I mean, I was, we were able to do so many, so many creative, great things. I'm so proud of that band and proud of those records that we did. Oh, one for the full length and the seven inch. Um, yeah. I mean, it was, it was really, really, really fun because you know how it is. It's like, I can go either one of us, we could get four guys together and we could crank out, a hardcore record and it would sound awesome and it would sound like the old school and we'd have a great time doing it and it'd be fun and the dance floor would go nuts you know mm -hmm. in the right situation but to do something that was like that and that creative was you know it to me was just you know really really satisfying to, uh, to really get that thing the things that you guys were doing musically enabled me to be a lot less inhibited and a lot more sort of berserk and unchained vocally but beyond that I mean, what was going on with the musicians, actual instrument playing mm -hmm. musicians? I always felt like I was playing catch up in that band. So, I mean, I can relate. I can relate to the way you just described it simply because yeah. I was always a little bit in awe of yeah. having managed to bring this, this threesome together. And we don't, I don't want to get into us overly stroking that or anything, but I will admit yeah. it was nice to hear you expand upon Shiners. I really miss it. Um, you talked about Miami. We talked about Boston. It sounds like a lot of things bloomed for you in L.A., You've kind of been all over, you know, you hit, you hit Europe during what I consider to be amazing years for an American to play in Europe. You're one of the only uh, musicians. Yeah. You're one of the only musicians I know though, who has taken his punk rock to Cuba. I'd like to hear about it. Actually, I've never played in a punk band in Cuba, but I am I've been going to Cuba on and off for over 20 years. Um, and I, I do study music. I'm a student of, of Cuban music and Cuban culture, and I'm always very humble and appreciative of being able to be over there and connect with my friends that have now become like family over there. Uh, in Miami, that's what I did. I, I wasn't planning on playing punk rock when I moved to Miami. Like I said, I was really trying to learn Latin, you know, Latin percussion and really absorb myself in that music. But of course, you know, word gets around. You know, I start going to shows, local shows in Miami. And they're like, hey, that guy used to be in Slapshot, the Vandals and Tour of the Night. And, so they're like, hey, you know, and so they kept hitting me up to play in a band. And I basically said, okay, I'll play, but here's how what I'd like to do. 
And if you guys are cool with it, then I'm all in. I, you guys, I want you guys to sing in Spanish and I want to market us to Latin America because what I don't want to do is put a band together, jump in a van and go play, no disrespect to like Toledo or uh, St. Louis or any of these other small cities throughout the United States and the Midwest where you're, you know, you're playing the VFW hall, eating at a Denny's and then sleeping in a motel six, you know, or someone's floor. That's fine. But I had been doing that, you know, for so many years that I'm like, well, I want to go to Latin America. I want to see these countries. I want to experience these cultures. And, and uh, so I'm like, if we market this to Latin America and we can bring it to a certain level where we can start, you know, building a little, you know, fan base down there, then, then we'll be able to go to these places and I can you know, use music as my, you know, as my stepping stone to get there. So they're like, oh, okay, sounds great. And again, dumb luck has it. Two years into this band um, that we were doing called Wahiro, MTV Tres was a new MTV uh, that was started uh, in America, but it was all in Spanish. They decided they're going to do a reality show, which was like the Great Race, where they took a band from all these different countries, gave them their own customized car with their band graphics, and we would just race through Latin America and then play a show. Somehow we got picked to be the American representation because we sang in Spanish, and so you know we could speak Spanish. So, so it was us, some uh, Brazilian uh, band, Venezuelan, Argentinian, and Chilean, and we were the U.S. And so, it was literally like one of those moments where, after one of the, uh, the little competitions that we had to do, which was like extreme sports out in the Andes, we're by a campfire eating a goat, <laughs> drinking um, uh, pisco sours by a campfire, listening to the waterfall in the background in the Andes. And I just looked at the guys in the band. And I'm like, that really seemed like a crazy idea, like, like two years ago, didn't it? <laughs> and next thing you know, boom. Yeah. And so with that band, yeah, we played all through South America. We played Puerto Rico a bunch of times, Mexico a bunch of times. Yeah. And so, you know, mission accomplished on that. So now back in California again, but you know, with ham, with ham apple, who I know, I know you have a great time with and who are mm-hmm. good friends of yours. You're still making it down south of the border in Northern America. And did you guys play Costa Rica? Yeah, we played Costa Rica. Yeah, played Costa Rica twice, twice so far. I mean, you know, with me, that's been a really big driving force. Of course, I love the creative side of music. We all do. That's why we do this. You know, I mean, it's to take four guys, stick them in a room, get to know each other, start writing. You know what I mean? And, you know, little by little, all of a sudden there's a song, you know, and you go and record it. And then the whole process of recording and mixing and putting it out and, seeing that people like it. I mean, that, that whole creative process, that's what really drives us. Correct. But it's, there's also been, and I think this comes from when I was in the Vandals and, you know, with the first year I was in the Vandals, we did a full U S tour. Then the second year we went to Europe for like three months. And I just remember going like, this is paradise. Like I'm, I'm getting to travel the world and not like a tourist where you basically go to a tourist area. Cause where else is there to go? And you get your hotel and everywhere you go, you're a tourist, you're a foreigner, you know? And, you get treated much differently than when you show up and play a squat in Milan and, you know, and then you got automatic friends. They came, they already like, they already obviously want to get to know you. They just paid however many lira to come see your band. Mm -hmm. So then after the show, now you got a little group of little homies, friends to go show you around their city. And um, yeah, I fell, I got, I got the bug for traveling through, through punk rock. And so I, every time I do a band, it's, you know, I always try my best to make sure even, I don't care if we, you know, obviously Ham Apple has been sort of like a, 
a band I've had with close friends here in Long Beach since the eighties. And it's been in different incarnations, you know, it was Ken all night rocker. And then it was corn doggy dog. And, and then it was ham apple. And, you know, it's just a bunch of fun old covers. We don't take it that serious, you know, but we go out and we have a great time. And, and, and that's always been, okay, where can we go? Obviously we're not going to get flights paid for an advance. You know, I mean, mm. half the time is barely a guarantee, you know, oh, here we got a couple hundred bucks from the door. Here you go. Right. So, you know, we just look at it as like, okay, I want to go to this country, but I want to bring my band and I want to play a show because that's how I want to socialize when I go to this country. You know, I want to, so that's pretty much how we ended up in Costa Rica a couple of times and down in Mexico a bunch of times. When you and I talked earlier today and I, I sort of pre-fed you a, a quick outline of what I thought we would do, I told you I'd end with something philosophical. And when you and I started playing together again in 2017, we were maybe little less than a year in i think it was when we were in vegas during punk rock bowling mm -hmm. uh you talked about aging out on this and there were only being so many years that you could do this and i was thinking to myself at the time that applies potentially to boxing potentially to music potentially to a lot of things four years is longer than it seems you and i are weeks apart in age you're you're 54 right yeah you and i are both 54 you still think you're going to age out on this stuff i i don't think i'll ever age out of it i'll do it and i promise myself this i'll do it till till i physically can no longer do it i love it that much and obviously i'm realistic about it and it's probably what's kept my passion for it is to be realistic about it it's too many of our friends are like there's no money in this i gotta get a real job or i'm tired of the scene or whatever and they just and that's it for them i love it you know i love it and i will do it till my body gives out you know, and I understand that, that you know, it's going to be tougher to get as the age gap gets, because let's face it, we play a young man's form of music mm -hmm. and it, it's, it's going to, it's always going to, you know, and now at our age, we're literally the age of, we're approaching the age of some people's grandparents that are at shows. Agreed. You know, and that dynamic, especially in punk rock, which is, has, you know, uh, a dance associated with it that's kind of aggressive and chaotic. And so there's always going to be this sort of a weird dynamic of these young kids that are like, want to go, they hear the music, it's inspiring to go crazy, but it's a little bit of a weird dynamic to have these guys that are that much older than them on stage. They're like, are these guys going to stop and like discipline us? Because everyone we know their age, if we're doing anything, they're yelling at us and they're... I keep wondering but, if it doesn't maybe straight by age. And there becomes a young person's punk rock and an old person's punk rock. Yeah. I mean, I just, in a lot of ways, I'm selfish with it. Like, I could really care less. You know what I mean? Like, who really, like, loves it? Like, I love creating music. I love playing it. And if I get an opportunity to do it, I'm going to keep doing it for the rest of my life until I physically can't. Why would I stop? And that was a thing that I learned in Cuba. Because I did in my, I'm going to say, mid-30s when I was in Miami. And that's why I was like, I don't want to play punk rock. You know, I didn't want to be in a band where, you know, I'm getting interviewed by some young kid who's asking me if you can still be considered straight edge, if you drink milk or eat honey or, oh, you know, all this stuff that to me, as I'm getting into my thirties going like, these things aren't important to me anymore. You know what I mean? All these, these rules of like straight edge and hardcore and the scene, whatever, you know? So I was like, ah, this is a young person's thing. I don't want part of this. You know, I'm too old for this. And I think a lot of us go through that. Then when I went to Cuba, it was a it was a moment that I was at a house party and all the guys who were playing the congas, these guys were in their 70s and 80s. And then the guys dancing were the same age and they were moving like 
They were pop locking. Like they looked like something. They looked like an 80 year old Cuban moving like they were in Beach Street. If you remember that breakdancing video. Oh, yeah. And they had smiles on their faces and they were laughing and they were drinking their rum and smoking the cigars and singing together. And I'm going like, why does my passion and my musical form have an expiration date on it? Because I know these guys never had one point in their life where like, yeah, that's it. I'm not touching those congas anymore. I'm not singing those songs anymore. I'm not dancing anymore. They just, it did never cross their mind. They're like, this is our culture. This is who we are. This is what we do. We love it. And they just, Never crossed their mind. So I'm like, all right, I'm back into punk rock. That is my culture. That is how I choose to express myself musically for the most part. And that those are uh, my lifelong friends. My closest friends in my life are from that scene. I have a worldwide net community. I'm like, why would I stop? And once I started playing it again in Miami, I instantly, my attitude towards life got better. I'm like, well, I feel normal again, you know, it was missing, you know, and even though I pushed that down aside, like, nah, nah, you know, what? Yeah. you know, once it came, once I got back to it, I'm like, ah, yeah, I'll never stop it. And I really haven't, like I said, you know, I mean, there'll be times where I'm doing a very serious project like we did with Shiners. And then there'll be times, there'll be probably years where I'm just doing ham apple and going down to TJ and, you know, singing on top of a bar top. <laughs> Well, listen, I know you love that video. <laughs> <laughs> that is a nice exit. And I find that most interviews I do with, with truly substantial people exceed expectations. So while I've said it to other people, you and I knew each other well enough that there was probably every chance this could come off main mundane for us. But I really found that intriguing and I'm really glad we decided to do it. So thank you for that, Doug. Absolutely. I really appreciate you talking with me. I needed it today. All right, everybody. All right. Well, that is episode 42 of Dano Says So. Hey, this is Chris Swinney, formerly of the Ataris and currently host of that one time on tour, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Have you ever wondered what it's really like on the road? The highs can be euphoric, but the lows can be crushing. Join me every week as I chat with industry pros about what it's like living out their wildest dream and in some cases, their worst nightmare. Past guests of the show include members of NoFX, Pennywise, Bad Religion, and more. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com.